Okay, so um, I've chosen my favourite canto of, uh, of Padmasambha's life and in a sense it's like, it kind of feels as if this is the start of, well a bit more of an exploration really of this particular story. And I can, I'd kind of encourage you actually, if you find something within Buddhism, um, particularly a story that really strikes you, just to kind of keep on returning to that really. Uh, and see what it kind of see what fruits kind of come out of that. And this particular story, Padmasambhava's refusal to make obeisance to the King of Tibet, is it's a reading that I've heard quite a few times, and I like reading. Um, and it sort of it feels as if there's definitely been some connections made kind of over the years, but it does feel as if this is a bit of a start of kind of getting to know this story a bit more. So, what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to say um, a little bit about, well, a bit like Manjanagda this afternoon, really, the, the life and liberation of Padmasambha, the kind of language that that particular text use, uses. And then I'm going to sing you a song. And then, the, in a sense, that will take you, the idea, in a sense, is that that will take you into Tibet and into the story. Uh, and then I'm going to tell a little bit of the story. I'm going to put the, uh, this particular episode in context. So I'm going to very briefly tell the story of Padmasambha's life. And then I'm going to draw out kind of some reflections that I've had on this. And like I say, it does feel as if there is just loads and loads of things that I could draw out of this story. Yeah. Um, so, as Manjanaga said this afternoon, the story comes from the life and liberation of Padmasambha, so, which is this text that's on the shrine in two volumes. There's a few different, uh, these various kind of life stories of Padmasambha, and these said to have been recorded by Yashe Sogyal. So, Yashe Sogyal is also on the shrine. I can't quite turn around to point to her, but there's a figure, um, there's like a gold image with a female figure on there. And Padmasambhava had kind of 25 chief disciples, but Yeshe Sogyal, in a sense, you could say is his main disciple, really. Um, and she's a, she's a, well, she's an enlightened being. She's kind of, she's got a whole life story in her own right, um, very inspiring kind of yogina, um, Padmasambhava's kind of consort. And Again, as Manjanaga said, the sort of life and liberation of Padmasambhava, particularly the life and liberation, some of the other stories about Padmasambhava's life are a little bit more sort of accessible in a certain way. Whereas the life and liberation, it's kind of, sometimes what you get is you get Dharma <coughs> teachings, quite straightforward Dharma teachings. Sometimes you get a sense of kind of history, kind of coming into being. Um, sometimes, it just really goes off into a kind of strange, weird, slightly dark, kind of fairy tale dream kind of thing. Um, Manjanaga used the word this afternoon, nightmare. Sometimes some of the episodes from Padmasambhava's life have almost slightly got that quality really. But I think it's sometimes actually, when we have those kind of dreams, when we have those dreams that kind of disturb us, it's almost like they, do, they are trying to tell us something in a, in a particular kind of way, really. So we kind of enter this weird, 
kind of world through the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. That's what we're going to be doing to begin with. And like I said, the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to um, kind of sing to you, chant to you. That's going to be the start of the evening. So what we're going to do is we're going to close our eyes to start with. And I'm going to sing something in English. Yeah, uh, it's a Padmasambhava seven-line prayer. And then I'm going to chant that in Tibetan. And in a sense, it's a bit like the Tibetan bit takes us into the world, takes us into the story. So just letting yourselves kind of settle down, just feeling the weight of your body pressing down into the ground. And just allowing yourself to relax. To the northwest of the land of again, on a of a lotus flower How wondrous The highest city has been attained Thus Padmasambhava declares O you who art Encircled by an entourage of Dakinis Following your example will I work Oh you, you must come here And give us your blessings Guru Padma Siddhi Hong So this is what you get if you get Padmasambhava as your sadhana. He likes to push you to do things that maybe you would otherwise find a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> um, so the seven line prayer is kind of calling Padmasambhava to kind of be with us, to um, bless us. So I'll just begin now just with the, the kind of the story, so a brief kind of version of the story of Padmasambhava's life. So it starts off in um, 
in India. Actually, that's one thing that I didn't say about the the, Padma, the life and liberation of Padmasambha. One of the volumes is to do with his life in India, and the second volume is to do with his life in Tibet. So obviously, it starts off with his life in India. So Padmasambhava, a bit different from the Buddha, he has a miraculous birth. So what we are told is that Amitabha Buddha, so the red Buddha of infinite light and infinite love, looks down to our, towards our world, sees the suffering of beings and wants to respond to that in some kind of way. So what he does is he emits a light from his tongue that goes down and penetrates the lake of Dhanakosha. And you could have a sense that as this happens, kind of, um, the whole scene is kind of, is ablaze with light, maybe even ablaze with music. And from the lake emerges a lotus. And on the lotus is a young boy. So the young boy, Padmasambhava. So Padmasambhava's name means lotus born. Padmasambhava is a lotus born. And in this uh, place, in um, Uddiyana or Urgyan, like you heard in, in the chant, where he's kind of born, there is a king and a queen who um, have been unable to have a son. So they... Well, they adopt Padmasambhava. Yeah, they take him in. And then the, the next part of the story is a bit similar to the life story of the Buddha. So, he, so Padmasambhava is brought up as the son of a king and queen. So he's very pr privileged. However, the next part of the story isn't like the Buddha's life. So um, what we find is maybe around about his teenage years, Padmasambhava has become very dissatisfied with the life in the palace. <coughs> And what we see is Padmasamava on the top of the palace. And he's dressed as a Siddha, he's dressed as a, um, maybe you could say kind of holy man or tantric, maybe even tantric didn't even, the words didn't even exist, but he's kind of, he looks a bit crazy. He's dancing on the top of the palace, he's holding a Katvanga staff. Um, and the Katvanga staff drops and kills somebody. So the people of the, uh, the town obviously not very happy with Padmasambhava. In fact, they're really outraged and they go to the king and the queen and they say, there's got to be something done about this, you've got to banish him. So obviously they're very upset, they don't want to let their son go. Um, but they do. And Padmasambhava leaves, maybe he's even chased out of the town. And where he ends up is he ends up on the outskirts of the village. He ends up in one of the eight great cremation grounds of India. And this is where he practices, he begins his practice of meditation in the charnel grounds. So here he's, he's taming his mind. Um, and he's meditating. And as he meditates, he goes through various transformations. So, so sometimes you hear about these eight manifestations of Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava has a period of time meditating in the cremation grounds, facing his fears. And um, what happens is, is that he goes through some kind of transformation and he's given a new name. 
So we heard about Dorje Drolo, that's one of the forms of Padma Sambhava. Um, there are various forms of Padma Sambhava. And he's also said uh, to teach the Darkanis. So he's in these charnel grounds, so the fires are blazing, the fires are burning, and there are various corpses in various stages of decomposition. And Padma Sambhava is meditating there. And he's got his back up against the stupa and he's teaching the Darkanis, his mind's expanded. He's not overcome by fear. And as it said in the chant, he attains the highest city, he attains enlightenment, kind of doing these various practices. So this is what's going on in India. There are other things that happen, kind of, um, but that gives you a bit of a sense of Padma Sambhava's early life in India. Now if we go to Tibet, there is a king who's recently come to power in Tibet and his name is Tristan Jetson. And Tristan Jetson wants to establish the Dharma in Tibet. He wants to build a monastery. And what he does is he invites a guy called Santa Rakshita um, to, well, try and establish the Dharma in Tibet. And he, he has some success. He teaches the kind of basic teachings of Buddhism. But he's unable to completely, um, well, kind of co convert the Tibetan people, really, for one thing. And what, he exp what Tristan Jetson experiences is kind of obstacles to his establishment of the Dharma. So it's said that the Nagas, so the forces of the depths, kind of obstruct the, the, uh, the propagation of the Dharma. And the king doesn't really know what to do. He's kind of a bit perplexed. He's kind of invited Santarachita. Santarachita can't do anything. Um, but Santarachita says, actually, there is something that you can do. You can invite Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava is not only a great scholar, he's also a yoga, he's also a siddha. He, um, in a sense, if there's anybody that can work with these forces, it's him. So there's a delegation sent to India and Padmasambhava decides that he will come. He will come into Tibet. And if any of you have ever, ever been to uh, Nepal and walked around that kind of region, so me and Limerie kind of went, went travelling a little while ago, it's quite a walk actually. It's quite a walk to kind of to go from Nepal and head towards Tibet. It's not an easy um, journey. Um, yeah, particularly you got, I suppose you've got to go through altitude and all kinds of things. So it's, a, so it's a serious journey. But not only that, not only is it very physically demanding, what we're told in the story is that Padmasambhava encounters various obstructions as he moves towards Tibet. So we're told that, that at various points, demons um, and darkenies and various other things obstruct his path. And Padmasambhava doesn't, uh, doesn't kill these, um, these beings, he doesn't annihilate them. What he does is he transforms them. In a way, he comes into relationship with them and he transforms them. So really, what, and he said that he binds, he binds them by oath and he gives them a treasure to keep. He gives them a Dharma treasure. So in a sense, what Padmasambhava becomes is a... Um, what the, the demons and all the rest of it become our Dharma protectors. 
So that's as far in to the story as we get before we get to this point where, which is the main part of this talk, which is Padmasambha's refusal to make obeisance to the King of Tibet. So I'll just read, I'll read to you from the canto. Then he came to Lhasa, to the Todlung Pleasure Park. The king who had taken up his abode on the bank of the Brahmaputra sent Larsang and Lupel Gyalpo as ambassadors, with 500 ironclad horsemen to escort them. Now at the time of this encounter at Todlung Basin, the heat was oppressive, and neither water nor tea were to be had. Think how terrible that would be, no tea. But the great one from Uriana, Padmasambhava, laid his staff on the Todlung well. La Sang, the water is gushing out. Hold a basin under it, he said. And the spot was henceforth called Divine Water of the Basin. After that, in the double castle, in the park along the Brahmaputra's bank, he met the ruler himself. The king of Tibet stood forth in the midst of his court. One might have thought it's the quivering radiance of a brood of pigeons. The two queens appeared, surrounded by their ladies, in dazzling attire, iridescent as tents made of samite. For welcome there were dances with drums, dances with songs, dances with masks and harmonious dances. Padma, the great one from Uriana, reflected, I was not born from a womb, I was born by apparition. The king was born from a womb, and so by birth I am the greater. At this instant, the law of Udiana lays hold on this kingdom. The king of defiled Tibet is great through his paternal lineage. But who are we, he and I? Plunged in darkness is his mind. I am learned in the five realms of knowledge, Buddha in a single lifetime exempt from birth and death. It is out of necessity that he invites me here. Formerly this king bowed down before me. Shall I or shall I not return his bow? If yes, the majesty, the majesty of the doctrine will be slighted. If no, since he is king, he will be angered. Yet however great he be, bow down I cannot. And King Trisinjetsen thought to himself, I am sovereign over all the blackheads of Tibet. The Bodhisattva abbot has already made obeisance to me. The guru must prostrate himself as well. So loath to extend the first greeting, he stood there hesitant. Now the guru sang his greatness and nobility. The Buddhas of the three times passed through the gate of the womb. Theirs are knowledge and merit heaped up, thrice innumerable. But I am Buddha Padma, Padma Jungne, sprung from the lotus. Mine are the counsellings which pierce the lofty concepts of the Dharma. I possess the precepts of the Tantric scriptures. I explain exhaustively, clearly distinguishing all the vehicles. I am Padmasambhava the sorcerer. Mine are the counsellings of the Dharma that transmutes the five poisons. I do not bid farewell to pleasures, I take them with me on the path, I exult in the fivefold gnosis. I am Padmasambhava the king, 
Mine are the counsellings of the Dharma possessing authority in the three realms. I embrace and shake the profound cycle of causality. I accomplish every action, subjugating the mind itself. I am Padmasambhava the Queen. Mine are the counsellings of the Buddha at the hour of death. I protect the undertakings of those who have great faith. I make happy the subsequent life of man. I am Padmasambhava the old man. Mine are the counsellings of the doctrine that shows the way for old men. I escort and guide in the free moral practices. I travel along the ways of celestial happiness. I am Padmasambhava the old woman. Mine are the counsellings of the doctrine that genuinely guides old women. I gird about me the armour of threefold patience. I vanquish inimical misery and error. I am Padmasamava the young woman. Mine are the counsellings of the doctrine that halts the fourfold Mara. I don the adornments of the free zeals. I give myself as spouse to all beings. I am Padmasamava the youth. Mine are the counsellings of both relative and absolute meaning of the doctrine. I storm the fortress of the threefold ecstasy. In places of every kind, I like to play. I am Padmasamva the deathless. Mine are the counsellings for the diamond life of the doctrine. I am not dependent upon the four external elements, nor do I set up a dwelling for the internal body of flesh and blood. I am Padmasamva the unborn. Mine are the counsellings of the great seal of the doctrine. My diamond body will never wane, for my mind in awakening is perennial lucidity. I am Padmasambhava the ageless. Mine are the counsellings of the Dharma that assuages the suffering of those whose vitality yields to sickness, whose splendid appearance has been struck down by circumstance. I am Padmasambhava who knows no sickness. The counsellings of the great perfection of the Dharma are mine. And you, King of barbarian Tibet, king of the country without virtue, uncouth men and ogres surround you. You rely upon famine serfs, and neither joy nor good humour are yours. As for your queens, they are Raksasi in human form. Beautiful purple ghouls surround them, sandalwood, turquoise and gold adorn them, but they have no hearts and no minds. You are king. Your lungs swell, great is your power, your liver is well satisfied. Scepter in hand and hearter you stand high, but I, sire, will not bow down before you. And yet, in accordance with my conjoined vows, having come to the heart of Tibet, here I stay, great king, witness, have I come. He spoke, turned his hands, and springing up from his finger, a miraculous flame seared the king's garments. King, ministers, courtiers could not withstand him. Bowing in unison, they prostrated themselves as though swept by a scythe. Did he say all that to the king? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that is the story um, that I would like to unpack. In it, actually, the reading goes on a lot further than that. He kind of there are a lot more I am Padmasambhava this and I am Padmasambhava that. Um, I really like the, some, there's something about, for me, the kind of even just the rhythm of that particular canto, which is really lovely. Um, 
but, but I'm not going to be going into the various bits that, that kind of he mentions, the various esoteric bits and bobs. What I'm going to ma mainly go into really is this whole kind of, the whole kind of standoff that happens between Padmasambha and the king. So this part of the story begins with Padmasambhava, one man, who is in relationship to many. So there are five, 500 ironclad horsemen. There are the queens, there are the ladies, there are ministers. Um, and he does get welcomed, so he gets welcomed with various dances, so dances with drums, dances with masks, various songs. And there is one man unwilling to bow down to another, but I think in a sense for different reasons. So to think about the king, so the king of Tibet oversees the land. So he looks after his people and he does that by wielding his power and authority. And to cross the king, to cross any king, there would be grave consequences. So it, um, Actually, in another story, in the, uh, when Padmasambhava is in India, Padmasambhava is put to burn at the stake by another king. So you don't really want to get in on the wrong side of a king. So he, so, um, but he hasn't exactly been polite, has he, really? So to disobey the king, you could be imprisoned. Um, you could be put to death. So you really don't want to anger the king and to add to this, the king is surrounded by his people. He's got all these kind of men and women sort of with him. So he has the full force around him, the full kind of pressure of the group. And the king is driv driven by um, ego clinging. And he would want to save face. He wouldn't want to be embarrassed in front of his people. He wants to keep up appearances. And he would expect everybody to bow down before him. And already, the Bodhisattva abbot, so Santarakshita, the person that came before Padmasambha, has already bowed down. But the king, so the king, is loath to extend the first greeting. And he stands there hesitant. And Padmasambhava doesn't budge. And the Padmasambhava has already been thinking... The king of defiled Tibet is great through his paternal lineage. But who are we, he and I? Plunged in darkness is his mind. I am learned in the five realms of knowledge. Buddha in a single lifetime, exempt from birth and death. It is out of necessity that he invites me here. Formerly this king bowed down before me. Shall I or shall I not return his bow? If yes the majesty of the doctrine will be slighted. If no, since he is king, he will be angered. Yet however great he be, bow down, I cannot. So what's kind of interesting for me in this story is, um, well, that for us actually to bow down is a good practice. Bow down to certain things is a good practice. At the beginning of the evening, we bowed to the shrine. Um, but you do need to be aware of what you're bowing down to or what you're bowing to. So like I say, we've, we've bowed down to the, the image of the Buddha 
And, it, and by doing that, we're trying to make our recept ourselves receptive to the Buddha Dharma, the influence of Buddhism, the influence of the Buddha, um, bowing down also to our kind of potential. And we're kind of saying that we're willing to serve, I think, when we're bowing down, willing to serve the Dharma. Um, and we're grateful for what we've received. That's another reason why we might, we might bow down. And in, um, so cha changing kind of um, Buddhisms, I suppose. In Shunro Suzuki's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, there's a lovely chapter on bowing, a lovely little bit on bowing. And he says that bowing helps to eliminate our self-centered ideas. And he also says that whenever, when everything exists within your big mind, all dualistic relationships drop away. There is no distinction between heaven and earth, man and woman, teacher and disciple. Sometimes a man bows to a woman. Sometimes a woman bows to a man. Sometimes the disciple bows to the master. Sometimes the master bows to the disciple. A master who cannot bow to his disciple cannot bow to Buddha. Sometimes the master and disciple bow together to Buddha. Sometimes we may bow to cats and dogs. Quite like that bit. So if we kind of take in Padmasambha at his word, He's saying that he's Buddha in a single lifetime. He's enlightened. Um, so he's not coming from a dualistic place. And he will have seen through, through the distinctions of self and other. In a sense, you could say he's, he's, um, his relationship would be one of metta, of loving kindness, of karana, um, in a sense of all the various kind of Brahma Viharas. And also, because he's seen through the sense of self, he hasn't got anything to protect Padmasambhava. Um, his mind is free from craving, it's free from hatred, and it's free from delusion. So it's important to remember that when you're hearing Padmasambhava going at the king in what seems like quite a strong, almost you could even think it sounds almost a bit egotistical kind of way, that Padmasambhava is free from craving, free from hatred, free from delusion. He hasn't got anything invested. So in a sense, he hasn't got anything to lose by either bowing down or not bowing down. It doesn't, kind of, doesn't really matter to him. Um, and he doesn't fear the king's retribution. Because for him, there's nothing, there's no sense of self to, kind of, to defend. But in this instance, even though he could choose to do either, he decides that he's not going to bow down. And he doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to um, slight the majesty of the doctrine. So he's not blissfully ignorant of the consequences of not bowing down. He understands that the king will be angered. Um, and he's already had other experiences with kings. He kind of understands what that could lead to. Um, so... What this kind of brought me onto thinking about um, was what Sangharacha talks about when he talks about the group and the true individual. So I'm going to sort of talk and kind of read a little bit from, um, well, the lecture at A Taste of Freedom. Um, so in this lecture, Sangharacha talks about the three fetters. 
So there are 10 fetters, but three of them, once they're broken, if you break the first three fetters, you've gained insight. This is what the, the tradition says. So, and how they, how they usually described is the first fetter is the fetter of belief in an essential unchanging self. That's the first fetter. The second fetter is the fetter of doubt and indecision with regard to the Dharma. And the third fetter is attachment to religious observances as ends in themselves. But how Sangharacha talks about these fetters in that particular lecture is in a more of a general kind of sense, which actually I think is very helpful actually. And it's the first fetter that um, I want to look at. So the way he describes, well actually I'll tell you what, what, how he goes through the, the three fetters. So he says the first fetter, you could see as the fetter of habit, the second fetter as the fetter of superficiality, and the third fetter as the fetter of vagueness. But like I say, it's going to be the first fetter, the fetter of habit, that I want to look at, because he talks quite a bit about that, um, that fetter and the relationship to the group and the individual. So the first thing he says is that a habit is a, um, well, a ten it's a tendency or disposition for somebody to act in a particular way. So that the per so that a person is a sum total of their acts of body, speech, and mind, and that we don't exist we don't exist apart from these these actions of body, speech, and mind. So if we have the tendency or disposition to act in a particular way. It means we have the tendency or disposition to be in a particular way. So we are, we are our habits. So the person that we think of, there's Artikatu or Balaji or Barbara or whoever it might be, what we actually are is a habit. That's what Sangharacha says. We're a habit that um, a certain stream of consciousness has got into. And because we've got into it, we can get out of it. That's very important. So there is no, um, so basically we don't have to be the way we are. There's no necessity about it. And what he says is in breaking the fetter of habit, what it means is that we get rid of the old self, the past self, and it means that we become a true individual. And um, the way he describes a true individual is somebody who is continuously aware, emotionally positive, continually responsible, sensitive and creative, so creative of oneself. And I'll add a little bit of that to that definition a little bit later. And he says that this is what the, the doctrine of anatta really means, so the doctrine of no self. What it really means is not so much that we don't have a self, but that that self is always a new self. And that if the, um, if each self is better than the last one, then we can say that spiritual progress is taking place. So then he begins to talk about, in a sense, the, the influence of the group. So he's, he says that um, it's not only difficult for us to get out of the fetter of habit, um, so us being the kind of person that we are, and he says one of the reasons for this is that um, not only have we got into the habit of being in a particular way,
but other people have got into the habit of experiencing us in a particular way. So there's a whole kind of weight of the group. So um, maybe you can kind of get a sense of that as well in, in the story. I'll come back to that a bit later. And he says that the people who experience us as what we, as what we were rather than what we are or what we're in the process of becoming represent a collective way of thinking, feeling and acting. They represent the group as opposed to the individual. And he says the group is the enemy of the individual, of the true individual. Inasmuch as it will not allow the true individual to emerge from its ranks. It insists on dealing with you, not as you are, but as you were. And to this extent, it tries to deal with someone who no longer exists. So if we come back to the story, we can see that in a sense, the king is a representative of the group. So group thinking, feeling and acting. He's the upholder of the rules and the views of society. And in a sense, when he sees Padmasambha, he doesn't really see Padmasambha for who or what he is. In a sense, he sees him through his role. He sees him through the fact that he's the king and here is another man who he thinks needs to bow down to him. Because everyone is subservient to the king. So the king who rules by power and by force, not by love and by wisdom. So he expects Padmasambha to act in the same way everyone else acts. But obviously Padmasambha doesn't play ball. He is willing to come all the way from India into Tibet, which is no mean feat in itself. And he is willing to help the king establish the Dharma in Tibet. But Padmasambha knows that the doctrine or the Dharma is the only thing to bow down to. And in a sense for the king to become a Dharma Raja, so for the king to become a Dharma king, he must learn this. So Padmasambhava is, is a true individual. He's continually aware, emotionally positive, responsible, sensitive and creative. And Padmasambhava is not determined in his thinking, feeling or acting by previously existing mental, emotional or psychological patterns, whether his own or, the owners, or those of others. So in this sense, it's like Padmasambha can come into relationship with things in a very spontaneous kind of way. He's not thinking about what other people will think or feel or all the rest of it. He's not bothered about saving face. He can just come into relationship with the situation, meet what's there in the situation, respond creatively in the situation. But if we think about our, our own lives, that isn't the, the, the case for us, is it? If we actually really be honest about it. Um, uh, so what I'm kind of pointing to in a way with part of this talk is that what we're doing by not bowing down is, um, well, that is a way of going beyond the influence of the group. Um, so a way, and a way of doing that is to tackle habit. So this is sort of bringing it right down to kind of our day-to-day -day sort of lives. 
And I was thinking today as we was doing the Padmasambha Day Festival, so this whole sense of kind of bowing down or not bowing down and choosing what we bow down to or don't bow down to, I suppose in a way you could almost see it as another, um, another way of talking about um, going for refuge. So true going for refuge, false going for refuge, what do we go for refuge to, what do we put our energy in, um, what do we want to bow down to, what don't we bow down to. So the example that I want to talk about is um, related to alcohol. So I think in some ways alcohol is a little bit of a sacred cow. I think kind of people, lots of us all, we have views about it. Um, I have views about it. And it, I suppose that when I say it's a sacred cow, it's that kind of thing of um, the sacred cow can't be slaughtered, can it? It's kind of like you can't sort of, it's a bit tricky to kind of challenge these kind of areas. So there are, there are all kinds of views of society about alcohol. Um, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I imagine the, the, the views of society are probably different for men and for women. So for a man, it is considered to be quite macho to be able to hold your drink. Um, and probably also if you're inclined to taking drugs or you have been in the past, probably similar kind of like with drugs as well, really. And there's all kinds of kind of views of society and also probably views that we hold within ourselves. So there are things like, um, well, that it's a really good weekend to go out and get hammered. That's, that's the sign of a really good weekend. Imagine if you um, generally work with people and you're friends with people that don't practice the Dharma, probably quite a lot of them think that it's a really good weekend to go out and get completely hammered and probably not even remember what you did half the time and have a kebab and whatever. Um, there's the view that we, um, and I must admit, I think I do hold this view myself, that if we drink, we feel more confident. So we feel more confident in social situations if we have a drink. Um, there is also a kind of sense of it, it's a quick fix. So it's a quick fix in terms of you feel stressed in the week, you have a drink and it calms you down. Um, and there's also a view that everything's okay in moderation. That's a kind of quite a popular hell view, I think. So I'm kind of, I'm using alcohol as an example of a habit. I'm not kind of saying, um, you should not drink. I'm just, in a sense, I'm just kind of like, uh, well, in a way, sharing my own reflections about kind of alcohol, really. But in a sense, it's like you could use any sort of habit in this kind of way to sort of tackle it, get to see what kind of, uh, what views we've got in relationship to it. So the other thing that is probably worth bearing in mind in relationship to a precept is that it's not about, it's not just about your own, the, the effect that something has on you. It's also about what effects does it have on others and on society. So, um, this is where the internet came in handy. So there are all kinds of impacts on society. So with alcohol related illnesses, alcohol related crime, issues of domestic violence, driving offences, um, deaths due to, to alcohol. And I think this, this, these statistics were some maybe done in 2010 or something like that. Um, 
But the statistics were that 67,891 people were admitted to hospital for alcohol-related harm across Greater Manchester in 2010. Imagine if Priyavada was here, he'd be able to kind of attest to that because he works in A&E and probably sees a lot of people coming in who alcohol-related stuff. So what about me? So what about me and my relationship to this particular precept? So how do I kind of bow down or not bow down in relationship to this precept? So what I found was that there was, um, there was a certain period, maybe not that long ago, where it seemed as if every other person was talking to me about their relationship to alcohol. I suppose the fact that I'm here as Mitch Convener and I speak to quite a lot of people, um, a lot of people were talking to me about their relationship with alcohol. I went down to Padmaloka and there's a guy telling me he'd given up drinking. Um, members of my study group were talking about alcohol and having time out from drinking. Some people completely um, abstaining. One of my GFR Mitra friends had kind of, he'd really, again, really looked actually at his views around alcohol and how he used it and the whole thing about, um, the whole view about, well, him using it in, in a social context to make him feel more relaxed. And actually, he was sort of questioning whether that really held up in his life because in other situations where he has to be quite upfront um, and quite responsible, well, he wasn't using alcohol then and actually he was all right doing that. So. As a result, he kind of decided that he wasn't going to he wasn't going to drink. So what I was kind of getting from all this was I was getting a sort of sense of a kind of a positive challenge. So from these various guys that was talking about, um, and it was sort of floating around my mind a little bit. So shall I have a chat with uh, Lynn Marie, my partner, about kind of us drinking and um, and I must admit I was a bit reluctant to do that. I kind of uh, yeah I was. So, but what I had noticed is that it was definitely, um, it had become a little bit of a habit for me to kind of to drink, to drink at the weekend. Um, so it wasn't a lot, but it was fairly regular. So there'd be kind of like, I'd have the end of my working week, it'd come to Saturday, I'd be a bit tired. And actually, it was quite nice to sort of have a glass of wine or a few glasses of wine. Um, after a day's carving on Monday, a bit of physical work, I quite like to have a beer. If my chapter wasn't on on Sunday, maybe we'd have a, have a meal, maybe we'd have a beer. So it was definitely kind of like becoming a little bit of a um, habit. So it was that sense of like it was a real, it was a real kind of treat at times really. And then thinking a bit more kind of broadly than that, so um, there's also kind of like the habit of me in relationship to my family and me in relationship to my friends from Salford who are quite big drinkers. Um, so I definitely feel more of a sense of pressure kind of when I'm in those kind of contexts. And if I'm honest, sometimes I do kind of um, bow down in that situation, I do drink. Um, I'm not saying it happened every time that I went out with my uh, non-Buddhist friends, but I kind of fairly frequently, there was enough of a weight of habit for, well, Manjanaga used to laugh about it really, like kind of, a bit like kind of, is there any chance of me going out with my Salford mates and not having a drink? Well, actually, yeah, occasionally, but a lot of the time, no, I actually don't see them that much, which also helps. Um, so anyway, 
Yeah, and, and the other thing that I kind of noticed in myself was that, so when, when uh, me and Lynn Marie started talking about it, it was actually Lynn Marie that brought it up. And then I sort of like, I got a bit specific about it and kind of like I said, all right, so um, she said, well, why, why don't we um, not drink until Christmas? So I said, all right, so what does that mean? Does that mean we're not going to drink when we go out with friends? Does that mean we're not going to drink when we go out with Lynn Marie's friends? Will it mean I won't drink? when I go to my mum's husband's 80th or whatever it might be. Um, and we kind of come to a bit of a, um, a bit of a kind of compromise really. Maybe I'll say a little bit about that in a bit. But what I noticed was that even having that conversation, so like I might think actually I'm not that attached to alcohol, I'm not that kind of, not that bothered about it. Very easy to kind of give up. Um, but what I did notice was having the conversation, there was a certain sense of fear, actually. There was a certain sense of, um, again, if I hold my hands up, there are times when life feels pretty intense and the easy way to deal with that, for me, is just to have a drink. And it kind of, it takes the edge off things a little bit. Yeah. So it felt like, all right, so I'm not gonna do that anymore. So what that means is, I'm going to sit with my uncomfortable emotions more that's what I'm going to do um, and actually uh, this is one thing that I've been talking about quite a bit in my study group like kind of the whole thing about um, actually is it so bad to kind of to bear difficult feeling um, we all experience it it might whatever it might be it might be feeling despondent it might be feeling sad it might be feeling a bit depressed might be feeling a bit angry, whatever it might be. They're not pleasant emotions, are they? They're, they're unpleasant feeling. What is so bad about kind of bearing that and not going anywhere with that, not sort of moving towards something which will t take the edge off that? Um, so not kind of not bowing down. And, and when I'm saying that, when I'm saying stay in relationships, difficult feelings, I'm talking about doing that with a sense of kindness. Sort of not kind of not cutting off from experience. So what we um, came up with, me and Marie, was that we would not drink in the house until Christmas. So it's not a kind of all out full on attack on um, my drinking or her drinking. Um, but we decided we're not gonna drink in the house. In a sense, probably most of the time that's where I would be drinking actually. We're just gonna do that until Christmas. Um, and actually, I think what has happened is, um, maybe it is also because I've been writing this talk, so kind of on, on Thursday we went to, we went to Salford, we went to the Legion, um, I was at me, my mum's husband's 80th, kind of lots of people drinking, and actually I thought, I'm not going to drink actually. Um, I don't really want to, and also, I think for me, there was something else actually, which is, um, recently I've had my kind of my nieces around to the house, and kind of one of my nieces, her dad, uh, has a lot of problems with alcohol, and kind of it's caused a lot of problems in the family, and there was almost like a bit of a sense of, I suppose sort of doing it for her really, kind of like, 
actually, do do I want to kind of um, be another person in her life that drinks? Like, I'm sort of saying this, but actually, but I imagine probably there will be times when I'm going out and I'm drinking, she might be there. But anyway, and I suppose it also got, got me kind of like thinking about, well, when it comes to vegetarianism, and we, we talked about this in, in the study group, like quite a few people said they found becoming vegetarian quite easy, really. Uh, there was one of the guys in my study group that was saying that he became vegetarian, and then actually he thought it was that easy that he would give himself more of a challenge, so he decided to look at kind of drink as the sort of as the next thing. So I suppose in my um, in my well, in me being vegetarian. It's kind of like I don't want to be supporting an industry which is killing animals for my pleasure, for my pleasure in terms of the taste. And I suppose it kind of like got me thinking, well, so I suppose this is more thinking, I'm not saying it's completely come down into action. Do I want to support an industry that actually causes a lot of harm in society? Um, I can see it in my family. I can see the sort of like, um, the difficulties that are caused by people either drinking a lot or taking drugs or whatever it might be. It's kind of like, and do I want to be another person that's sort of adding it, um, adding into that or whatever. And the, there's a piece of advertising um, that kind of came to mind when I was sort of thinking about this, which is really kind of, I don't know how they can get away with this piece of advertising, really. So it's the advertising for Bargain Booze. Bargain Booze is advertising, if you ever see it, it says making, uh, making the lives of the poor richer. Oh. It says that on the vans and stuff like that. And actually, it's like, how can you say that? Look at society, look at life, look at the statistics. How can you get away with that? <coughs> so, so, th so this is the kind of, uh, I'm getting quite close to the end of the talk actually. So what we've, what we've looked at in the talk, um, we've looked at, well, the life of Padma Sambhava and specifically this story about Padmasambha's refusal to make obeisance to the king. And this whole thing about what does it mean to bow down and not bow down? And what does it mean to bow down in a positive sense? Because I do think there's a very positive, there's a lot of positives in bowing down. So in the sense of it being a physical gesture that helps us to be receptive, to be grateful, to be willing to serve the Buddha Dharma. And as I said, according to the Zen tradition, that bowing down can help us eliminate self-centeredness. And then the last bit, looking at how not bowing down um, and how not bowing down to habit and the group, that actually we can begin to make an inroad to that first fetter. And one of the things that Sangharajit says is actually that if you break one of the fetters, they all go. Um, so if you can really see this sense of kind of no fixed self, um, or to put it differently, breaking the fetter of habit. Well, what that does is it, 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 um, it allows you to make that leap into insight. So it brings you closer to the realization of Padmasambhava, to the realization of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, 
being not determined in their thinking, feeling or acting by previously existing mental, emotional and psychological patterns, whether they are their own or those of others. So that is it.